Hi everyone, welcome to Design Development brought to you by H&O Structural Engineering. This is your hub to learn direct from top performers in real estate development, design, and construction. I'm your host, Renz Hayes, co-founder of H&O, lifelong learner, and I'm obsessed with high-powered organizations and the leaders that guide them. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, I can't thank you enough. Let's go. Today's guest on design development is Lizetta Fennessy. She is the general manager and leader of the Eastern Business Unit for Hilly and Aldrich. They're a national geotechnical firm with about a thousand people in offices throughout the United States. Liz is a great leader and has such an interesting career story. She obviously started off as a geotechnical engineer, grew through project management, and while raising her family, she actually started working part-time for about 15 years and even did a stint in real estate development, gave her unique insights on how to create value for her customers. She's been back at Haley and Aldrich while they've grown from the 400 to about a thousand people. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Lizetta Fennessy. Please join me in welcoming Lizetta Fennessy. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. As someone with a unique name, I'm excited to ask you, where does Lizetta come from? Uh, my grandmother in Nebraska, she grew up on a farm and she was named after her mother's best friend. Named after her mother's best friend. Yep. Yep. And that's about all I know. It might be Eastern European. We don't know. We have that shared past because I, I, we just take Wrens, I'm told is Dutch Irish, although I'm not Dutch. And it's from my great grandmother who married Wrens the first. And she was the one that said that, and none of us have ever fact-checked her, so we're still waiting to figure yep, out. Yep, it's a mystery. I'm not uh, Eastern European. <laughs> Absolutely love it. For those that don't know you, could you share a little bit about yourself and what you do at Haley & Aldrich? Sure. Um, I'm currently functioning as the general manager of the East Business Unit. Uh, we recently reorganized into geographic business units. Prior to that, I was the general manager for the Buildings and Infrastructure Group nationally across the country. Uh, now I'm focused uh, in the Eastern time zone, which is nice. Liz, could you give us a sense of scale of H Haley and Aldrich, number of offices, employees, revenue, if you share it? Sure. Yeah. We are about 35 offices nationally. We're approaching a thousand people this year. We expect to cross that mark as we grow. And last year, our revenue was around $180 million net service revenue. So we're hoping to get to the 200 million mark this year. That's an impressive business, and I admire the the growth goals, and thank you for sharing those. When did Haley and Aldrich start? How many years in business do you have? 1957. We were actually an MIT startup back in the 50s. Harlan MIT Aldrich. startup in yep. the 50s? Yeah. When you think about MIT startups now and all the tech and biotech startups here, H&A actually came out of MIT and Harvard, where Harl Aldrich and, and Jim Haley were. And, you know, we were in Cambridge for a long time. So we've been over 65 years at this point, started as geotechnical engineers only. And over time, as our client needs grew and the world changed, we added other disciplines, things like environmental engineering and science, a lot of geology, things like that. And, you know, as the world continues to evolve, we add services that make sense for our clients that they want to use us for. I want to dig into those market or service areas a little bit. I know Haley and Aldrich mostly from the building environment, more structural engineers on buildings, and you do a lot of geotechnical work for these buildings. That could include environmental, contaminated soils, the actual geotechnical engineering, supportive excavation. But where else does Haley and Aldrich's, Aldrich's services expand to? What other types of projects do you work on? Yeah, that, I mean, what you just described is what we are prominently known for in Boston and we're, you know, fortunate to have a large part of that that market here. But in other areas we do different things and we even do different things locally here. We have clients in the industrial and manufacturing sectors that includes aerospace and defense, other types of manufacturers. We work a lot for energy clients, which is really exciting and actually new to me. You know, we're helping them clean up some of their legacy issues and we're helping them with the transition to renewables, you know, with with wind energy um, and the transport uh, transmission and distribution that's associated with that. We support that kind of work. We also have a lot of government work, transportation, municipal, federal, Navy work, things like that. So we do a wide range of sectors 
And we're really, you know, there's a lot, our history is in the, what I call the AEC industry, you know, helping people build things. But as, as time has gone on, we also help people clean up things and, and service operating things. And, you know, we're moving into supporting our clients on climate resilience and ESG things as well. Something I think about in terms of, let's say, developing or acquiring a new piece of land or disrupting existing properties, the risk of contaminated soils, how often is that a risk? And and how much is the cost, say, doing due diligence before I buy a piece of property? Like, Is that when we involve you? And what's like the risk profile of whether we buy something without knowing about contaminated soils? It's hard to do that these days. You know, most most owners are aware that they need to be thinking about that. It's pretty rare in our world that we see someone who has no idea about that. But we really do provide a lot of value in those early due diligence uh, studies, both on the environmental uh, end and the geotechnical. Hey, what are the premium costs that we're going to have at this site? If we buy this site and develop what we think we want to do here, you know, are there geotechnical issues we have to worry about? Are there flood issues that we have to worry about? And then the environmental contamination, which is almost a given in pretty much urban environments. It's It would be rare not to have an issue. I, it's really the degree of severity. But then when you're getting out to other locations, you you still have to be mindful of it because you need to look at what's upstream. It may look nice, but you need to look at what's upstream or you may need to look at, you know, adjacent properties and things that, that may be impacting, um, impacting your site. So it really applies everywhere. Degree of severity is a good way to put it. Cause like you said, like what's the chances of finding soil that's not contaminated in an urban environment is probably unlikely. Yeah. Geologists, what in, in what way are they, what clients are using your team for their geologists? What type of projects are they working on? Where does that come into the fold? We have more geologists than any other discipline in the country, uh, company. And so they're really involved in, in everything. Um, on geotechnical projects, they're helping us assess and understand the soil and its behavior. On environmental projects, they're really focused on similar things, but helping understand the underground and how contamination might flow through it, how uh, it may be the, the geologic history may impact where things are going to end up or how different materials, contaminated materials, where they might be in different types of, of material. Hydrogeologists in particular help with groundwater flow models, things like that. You know, if a uh, dry cleaner contaminates a site that doesn't stay there. It moves. (laughs) So hydrogeologists help us model things like that or other types of contamination. And how does the geologist interact with the geotechnical engineer? It seems like they're working in tandem. Yeah, ideally we're partnering. You know, a a lot of times the geologists help early on with saying, here's what I think we're going to find at the site. And then they're helping design programs to the exploration programs as needed. And then, you know, they help us interpret the the results on a geotech project. So, and they help us see nuances because the depositional environment that the soils were laid down in affects their engineering behavior. And we can't test everything, right? So, So that really helps us get a lens on where to focus that kind of testing if we need to do that. You know, in a place like Boston, which has been studied to death, we're not turning projects into science experiments. And we we tend to have a, a good history and a lot of experience to leverage it there. But on a lot of sites, you don't know what you're going to encounter. And you really need to start to plan for that as quickly as you can. Something I learned as I prepared for today's conversation is that Haley and Aldrich is employee-owned. That was something I wasn't aware of. When did they become an employee-owned business? So it started as a partnership with Jim Haley and Harl Aldrich. And over successive years, we have rolled over the stock and we have a transition process now. So we are about 25% employee owned. So we have a, a process where once you get to a certain level, essentially project manager level or equivalent, if you're doing something different, you can be considered to be asked to purchase the stock. And we're looking really to reward our our best performers and the business partners that we trust with the stock. So they get an opportunity to buy shares at that point. And then over time, on an annual basis, we review folks who are interested in buying more and make decisions on yay or nay, depending on, you know, how much stock we have in any given year and what 
what the individual's contributions to the company are. So it's a, it's a form of reward to to our highest performers. Yeah, it's a great benefit to employees. I, I love the employee-owned model. And it seems like your team opted not to do uh, an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan. So this is a, a private stock sharing you're doing with your employees. Do you see that as a, a really big retention tool? Is it something that's appreciated across the organization? It is. And in fact, when we hire senior folks into the company, it's usually one of the first questions that they ask is, how soon can I get in? Right. And, you know, of course, the consulting answer is it depends. It depends on an individual performance and it depends on, you know, our needs in any given year. But but we do, you know, provide a good reward for folks. And, and we do see that, you know, there's a there's a high demand for I encourage people to think of ownership, and that's exactly what this is. This is a part ownership in a business is that it it's it's not something that you're entitled to. You should think of it as how am I bringing value to all of the other company owners that I'm about to partner with? How am I raising the bar and contributing to the success of the company so that I am worthy of that share? And that, that mindset is really important. Yeah, it really is. And it's, you know, for us, we have to have a level of trust. You know, you're making business decisions that affect everyone's finances. So we really, you know, need to have that level of trust with with our folks. So from the outside looking in, it, it seems Haley and Aldrich has an emphasis on diversity inclusion. I'd almost call your team a, a leader in diversity inclusion within the engineering space. Could you talk to us about that focus and what it means to you? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're working on it. It's a work in progress as, as it is for many companies. We are about 42% female. So we're in the top 10% on gender diversity. And I can see that over the course of my tenure, how it's changed since I started. And it was, you know, less diverse before I started from a gender perspective. We have work to do on the racial and ethnic diversity. And we view that largely as a pipeline problem. So what we sort of started to do is look upstream. Okay, we would like our company to be more diverse. Well, what does that take? It takes diverse candidates. Well, where are those diverse candidates? Well, we're looking. They're 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 there in places, but they're not is there's not in everywhere and, and it's it's a little bit harder. So we've gone upstream to high school and wow. we yep, we have started some programs. Boston is our largest office and, and our oldest office. So we started there and developed partnerships with two high schools, Dearborn STEM and Charlestown High School. We're also partnered with UMass Boston and Bunker Hill Community College. So with those four educational institutions, we're doing a mix of things. Some of it is exposing younger kids to the engineering world or the geology world. If you don't know about this, you don't know, right? And and if you if you think back, like you know, you, you need to be focused on math in high school to get you know the education in engineering. And so so we're trying to expose kids as early as sophomore year to the world that we're in, so that they can adjust their classes to help them give the best shot. That coupled with so that's educational programs in schools. But the other thing that we're working on and it's been growing over the last three or four years, is internships in Haley and Aldrich. So we have the very traditional hire a civil engineering major in college and, you know, have them do productive work for us as best we can in the summer or, you know, a, a six-month co-op or things like that. So we have that, we've done that for years, but we now come up with a new program that is a little bit more concentrated and it skews younger. So we'll take people in high school and bring them into Haley and Aldridge over the summer and expose them to hands-on experiences in the company. And so they go to sites, they go to our lab, they see what we do in the office, things like that. And so they get to sort of take a tour of what we do here and so that they get exposed to a range of things that we do. And we also try to help them see other things in the industry as well with various field trips and things like that. So the goal is so that they can see what it would be like. And then we hope that they come back to apply to us, but we'll consider it a win if they end up anywhere in the um, building industry, you know, just to, just to increase that pipeline. You're going to, if for anyone that's running a business, if you want to be a leader in an industry, these are the types of things that you have to do. Yeah. 
to become that leader because you're you're paving the way. You're taking a proactive approach. It's a lot easier for a company to just say, "Hey, diversity and inclusion is important, but we're not getting the candidates coming to us." But it's like, what are you doing to create the pipeline of candidates and give them an opportunity at your company? How are you attracting them? And you're leading by example. Yeah. But we're trying. Yeah. We're looking to scale that uh, elsewhere in the company. But we started here where you know we have longstanding ties and our clients want this from us. Tell us about your role as general manager of the East business unit. Like you said, H&A has three business units, one of those being the East. What are your core responsibilities as general manager? Uh, my f- fellow general managers and I joke that all we do is generally manage. <laughs> all we do is generally manage. I know it's an interesting title, right? It's like at face value, you don't necessarily know. Oh, yeah. It scales from restaurant general managers to hotel general managers to, you know, the Red Sox have a general manager. (laughs) I'm looking up at the Red Sox, not at the restaurant. But but yeah, it is it is really very general, but it's operational responsibility for the book of business in the business unit and the people, their development and growth. You know, it's it this point, the East Business Unit's a little bit over 300 people, and it's about set, represents about 74 million in net service revenue. So it's it's anything from you know hiring and staff development to you know reviewing contracts and making sure that we're making good business decisions, growth strategy. You know, when are we opening offices? Who are we hiring? Where are we trying to go? I work in conjunction with many people in the company. You know, we have market leaders focused on all of our markets my fellow general managers and other leaders to to see where we need to skate to. But when it comes down to getting it done in a in my geography, that falls to me. And if I think about this correctly, so you're overseeing a team of about 300 people. That's correct. And then so there's a general manager of the other business units. And within your team, there's other market sector leaders, there's principals, project managers, and all of that staff. And you're essentially overseeing all of that operations from HR to the design process to the revenue that they're bringing in the sales. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have corporate departments supporting everybody, but but I'm the interface if, if necessary. And that was my the next piece. As I understand the organizational structure, there's an executive team of your typical CEO, COO, CMO that kind of is overseeing all of the business units. And strategic planning, Are you is your team, is your East business unit sharing lessons learned, shared processes across the business units? How do they interact? Yeah, we do. We talk about that. And, you know, in any matrixed organization, you have, you know, are you talking through your technical disciplines? Are you talking through your markets? Are you talking through your geographies? Are you talking, you know, we have specific, you know, principles, meetings that where, you know, the most senior folks in the company talk together about challenges. We're a collaborative company, collaborative almost to a fault. So we are, you know, talking frequently across all of those channels to make sure that we're focused on what our clients need. That's really the number one thing is, you know, we exist for our clients and making sure that trends that we see in different geographies are shared so that we have an understanding. And then the same with our employees and their development. I mean, that's the the next thing is, you know, we it's really important that we make sure that everyone that is working here is having, you know, the best possible career we can give them. I want to take a trip down memory lane what inspired you to become a geotechnical engineer? So I wanted to be an architect and I went to UMass Amherst and they didn't have architecture. So I majored in civil engineering and probably slept, walked through it for the first couple of years. I was just doing it. And junior year, I took soils class and I had this light bulb that, what, you can play with dirt and have a job at that? Like that's (laughs) just occurred to me, you know, the early part of civil engineering is very structures focused and it, it immediately got me interested in my major. You know, I started focusing more on my major. I started doing better in school and I certainly started to care a lot more about it. You know, at a big school, you could focus on a wide range of things. Towards the end of my tenure there, I started to focus on my academics. So so I really got excited about it. And, you know, I, as a kid, I, I played with Legos and trucks and 
Ponca trucks and in dirt piles, and I like making roads, and I liked making buildings, and so I I just I got excited about it, and you know went on to grad school, and you know it was a great experience, a great opportunity. What a cool story! An aspiring architect who finds himself in civil engineering and falls in love during soils engineering class in junior year. Did you? You? It seems like you joined H and A right out of college. Yep. Yeah, it was my dream job. <laughs> Who was someone you looked up to early in your professional career? You know, I, in grad school, I idolized H&A from afar. There was a report sitting on someone's desk and I read it and read it. I just thought that everything H&A did was, now that I work here, I know it's not utopia, but but I, you know, as soon as I got an interview, I was over the moon. And when I was offered the job, it was sort of a no brainer, you know, to, to take it. And when I started here, I, you know, it's hard to point to one person because I was so in awe of everyone who was senior and the projects that they worked on. I mean, this was the height of the big dig. We had done, you know, a lot of the Boston skyline. And, you know, at that point, we were an office based company. We're a single profit center now. But so my early tenure here was very much focused on, on Boston because that's how we were structured. And so I saw us as having this, you know, opportunity to build the skyline and build the artery underground. And that just had me over the moon. But, you know, in terms of folks that, that really, you know, inspired me, one of my earliest memories is the first time I met Maria Gorsica. So, you know, it wasn't as diverse gender wise as it, as it is now. And she was one of the few senior women. And I just remember seeing her walk down the hall one day and being like, who's that? There's another woman here. <laughs> and, you know, she's actually next to me on the other side of the wall here. And, you know, we've had a long and fruitful relationship since. But, you know, many others as well. Mark Haley's been a great inspiration to me. Uh, Joel Rooney. We've, we've had a lot of folks here who are, you know, really taught everyone here a lot and, you know, helped us maintain that client focus and pragmatic solutions. You know, that's what we've been focused on. Now, seeing her in a leadership role early in your career, did that kind of inspire you to chase more of a leadership role and advance your career? I suppose I should say yes, but not really. I, I've always been a person who's been focused on doing my job. You know, simple mantras like just do it, like Nike or Bill Belichick, do your job. I, I, I haven't ever been a person who's trying to get my next job. I just try to do the job I have when it's worked out for me. So I I was happy to see that I wasn't the only female around, but I was still mainly focused on being a good engineer and keeping my project managers and principals happy and keeping the clients happy. So were you so you were really focused on doing your current job well? Were you also focused on kind of advancing your career and getting to the next step? Was it something you were being groomed for these positions? You were obviously a project manager early in your career. How did that kind of career growth start to, to come out? Looking back, you know, I was given good opportunities, right? Good opportunities to grow. At the time, it wasn't always. And then, you know, there was a point in my career where once I had children, I switched to part-time work. And that's a, that, that changes your, how you, how you work. I mean, I had to be selective about the work I took on working part-time and just to, for a trip down memory lane, this is, before laptops, before cell phones. So if you weren't in the office, you weren't working. And so to be part-time meant that you had to be working on a team that could tolerate your absence for, you know, a period of time. And so that that at that point in time, you know, my career still progressed, but slower. You know, if you're doing half the work and you're only taking projects that you know you can be successful on, it changes the work that you do. And so, so I did, you know, my, I was making progression and then slowed down a bit and I was fine with that because this I, is a great conversation, but how many years into your career did you make the decision to go part-time? Seven, I think. Seven years. So you're an established project manager. Like you said, you're very driven to, to do your job well, be accountable, be responsible. What led to the decision for you to be part-time? Children. Yeah. Children. I had, yeah. I had my first daughter in 2001 and it was just the decision we made that, you know, I want, I did want to spend time with them and, you know, I wanted to reduce my time at work. 
And so I stayed part-time for 14 years. Quick break from the show. Thanks for tuning in to Design Development. We're trying to help as many people as possible. So if you could subscribe and leave a review on today's episode on whatever platform you're listening, it would be a great help. It's the only way we're going to reach more people. Let's get back to the show. I applaud you for that and having that perspective, right? Like the the only goal in life can't just be your career. You got to take a look at your life as a balance, your family, your friends, your mental health, your physical health, all those things, and, and make sure you allocate time to to, live, to lead your life, not the life that you think others want to see of you. So for those that are considering the same, being successful in a part-time role is not easy. Like you said, you're not always available. You have to be working with a team. It also means that you have to be very accountable, communicate, responsible. Do you have advice for anyone that is considering this or, or struggling with this decision to balance work and being a parent at this time of their Yeah. I mean, I would first say I don't regret it at all. I'm really happy with the choice I made. And I do think it's different today with one with technology and two in this post-COVID world. So, you know, you it's it's a blessing and a curse, I think, that you can work at all these different times. You know, so I think a lot of parents appreciate that flexibility, that they can do things at different points in, in their day, and they can make it up at night or really early in the morning. And so to be part-time, you're doing that as well, right? And I always took it, you know, I always had the attitude of, I'm not available right now. Doesn't matter if that's because I'm, you know, feeding my kid or I'm at a meeting. You know, all you need to know is I'm not available right now. So I kind of kept some boundaries. Not everyone wants to keep those boundaries. And some people want to be very transparent about what they're doing when. And I think either is fine, but that was that was my choice so that I so I could have some boundaries between work and home. So I think today, if you're going part-time, you need to consider what boundaries you do or don't want to set because you could work at any hour of the day and and get your job done full time or part time and you need to think about what your what your priorities are and and set those boundaries that make sense for you setting boundaries is a great piece of advice i, I think it's important for any professional i, I know even me as a driven professional, like you could end up finding me working endless number of hours working towards a goal that I want to achieve, right? But that doesn't necessarily create balance. That's stealing from personal time, from health, from family, from friendship. So you have to set boundaries to to control. And I think when you don't have boundaries, that's when things like burnout start to creep in. Exactly. You had a short stint. You you spent your career practically at HNA, but you had a short stint where you went over to Trammel Crow. What prompted this move? Yeah, it was a, it was a great opportunity put in front of me. And you know, back to where I was talking about being part time, and you know, I made that career choice. And I at the time I felt that I didn't really have a career path at HNA. I you know. We had part-time staff and it was okay I to move slower, but I didn't know where it would go long-term. And I was working for Trammel Crow on a project and um, someone there started talking to me. I resisted for about a year and a half um, and eventually gave in. And part of the reason it took so long is I was not willing to work full-time and it took a while before they were able to accept that. So I went over in 2006. I was actually pregnant with my third child, and it was a fabulous experience. I don't regret it at all. I learned so many different things. One of the biggest things I learned is how insignificant the work that I was doing in the context of the whole building. You know, the minute you're out of the ground, no one's thinking about the geotechnical engineering anymore. They're thinking about, you know, how fast can we get the steel up? When can we get the finishes in? When can we open? We need this date. We need to market, you know, all those things. So it was a fabulous experience, you know, until the Great Recession. <laughs> That's a good perspective, though. And for anyone, you, you got to be aware of where your service and your value lies in a project. And putting yourself in the shoes of your clients is probably one of the most powerful exercises. You no, I mean, you know, I really learned to, you know, we have to provide value for for what we're doing and we have to make sure that you know our clients are able to you know build their buildings or clean up their contaminated site in the most effective way possible we need to be providing value because our value is pretty much invisible really 
And every extra dollar spent underground, you know, in a building is a dollar not spent on a light fixture or carpet or wallpaper or anything like that. So, you know, it is really important to make sure that we're that we're providing that value. Such a great insight. We we share that same conversation here and structure. Uh, 99.9% of the buildings, the structure is completely covered up, right? It's not a part of the overall. So it's it's money that you don't necessarily see, but it helps create the space that, that brings the value to the property. So that perspective is super valuable. So you mentioned the recession. Is that what ended up bringing you back to h and Yeah, I got laid off from Treble Crow and I was actually home for a little while. I'm pretty sure I could have beat down every door and not gotten a job in 2008, 2009. But I had three little kids and, you know, it was fine. And it, I learned a lot staying home, frankly. And it, that is, and what ended up bringing me back to H&A, I really wasn't even thinking about H&A, but Rebecca Higgins, who I know you know, and I were talking and she, she had talked about how the company had changed. And I made an offhand comment like, well, maybe I never would have quit if I, you know, knowing that they were going to evolve like this. I love that. Can you help share like what changed, what piqued this interest? Yeah, but at the time that I was gone, uh, or before I left, I should say, there was really one track, you know, technical work, you became a project manager, you had to become a principal, and there was really sort of a, you know, one size fits all model for advancement. And, you know, while I was gone, they took a more open mind and started to, uh, you know, formally allow people to play to their strengths and sort of almost declare a major where, you know, you could say, I'm going to be really technically focused. I'm really going to focus on managing projects. I'm going to focus on on the client relationships and making sure that our clients are happy. And you can't ignore any of those things, right? You have to, but let's face it, there's a lot of terrible project managers out there. And there's a lot of people who shouldn't talk to clients, you know? And, and so we were allowing people to kind of find the best path where they could be providing that highest best use to our clients and not be fortressing like square pegs into round holes. So when I heard that, uh, you know, that was that what I was what I thought was more interesting. And, um, and that's got me talking. That's a good takeaway for any small mid-sized business owner. Do you have a sense of scale? How many employees were they about this time when they made that transition? Maybe 400. 400. Yeah, because you're right. Like the traditional AE model is you come in, you're a project architect, design engineer, whatever that is, and you grow through a project manager to senior project manager to associate principal. That's like kind of the, the status quo for the path. And like you said, it's oftentimes trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And for a company to really create continued growth beyond those early stages, you got to open up. When you're small, you kind of need those positions to be a jack of all trades. Those are the people you need. But as you grow, you can create opportunity for these other skill sets to have career growth path. Yeah. And we we also, from a cultural perspective, we wanted to move from a practice of consultants where everyone has their little fiefdom to a consulting practice where there was a lot more cross-communication in lar- building larger teams, you know, as our world became more multi, you know, we went from geotechnical engineers where, you know, one geotechnical principal could have a couple people helping them on a project to, well, now you need environmental practitioners and maybe you need a hydrogeologist and, you know, maybe you need this or that. It, but as the teams grew, you know, you, you needed to really form a team versus a pyramid structure. So that, that was also part of the growth. So. And coming back to H&A, this new kind of organizational structure and career opportunities, what position did you did you rejoin? Yeah, something pretty unique. It, it didn't actually exist. They created the position coming out of the recession and having a need for more business development. And again, you know, we were a single profit center at that time, but, you know, all real estate's local. <laughs> so I was hired to help with business development in the Boston real estate market and the higher education and institutional market, healthcare, things like that. You know, prior to the recession, you know, in the private sector like that, you know, our relationships and the phone ringing, you know, kept us afloat. And that was a very nice position to have coming out of the recession. You know, business had changed and we needed to sort of focus on 
advancing our position and making sure we understood where things were going, you know, who was doing what. And we hadn't really focused on that before. So they had me start to do that. You know, we had done, we, we've had obviously marketing and business development folks for years, but in this particular market, we didn't have a long history of that. It was mostly seller doers before that. And this started to kind of create specific business development focus. Yeah. And we're still primarily that, but we had to educate ourselves and change how we, how we work. How would you describe your business development strategy or at this time? And if it's evolved, I'm interested in that. I mean, I don't think it was anything, you know, earth shattering, but just really making sure that I understood the market and conveyed that to others in the company and then forming, you know, trusted relationships with people so that, so that we could get a seat at the table in places that, that we hadn't and, and being able to demonstrate our value and, you know, coming out of Tremel Crow and realizing, you know, our place in the world in terms of, you know, where we fit into the big picture of a project, you know, trying to cut to the chase of how do we do that as quickly as possible, as simply as possible for our clients, you know, things like that. So that's what I was really focused on. And a market segment leader, what markets were you focused on? Higher education and healthcare, basically our nonprofits. We and we see a difference in obviously all client types, you know, behave differently, their priorities and their focus. So, you know, a real estate developer and that fast paced world that I had come from and and enjoyed. I enjoyed working for developers and I enjoyed my time being one. You know, their needs, they want everything yesterday and as simply as possible, as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible. Institutional clients and, and you know, where's our campus going to be in 100 years? You know, how are we going to provide the best healthcare? So learning about those client needs and then how we could best support them was was really exciting. I really enjoyed doing that. It's a great point. You really get a, it, it's don't assume you understand what's important to your client. You really have to ask the questions to make sure you have a chance to hear it from them. Because if, if you're coming in with the wrong message to an institutional client, you're not going to go very far. Yeah. If you treat them like a developer, it doesn't work well. Any projects you're particularly proud of from this time? I, I am proud that going way back uh, to have supported the central artery, you know, you can love it or hate it, but it was, you know, a real catalyst for change in the city. One of the most impactful projects the city will ever see. Yeah. Yeah. And it enabled all these other projects, right? If you think about the Greenway and what's happened downtown in that area. I mean, Seaport. Seaport. Exactly. Exactly. The other, you know, they were fun projects. These are these are also old, but I'm I'm very much a fair weather sports fan. But I was lucky enough to get assigned to Gillette Stadium and also uh, Fenway Park. So in my first tenure at H and A, I I worked on the athletic facilities, and you know that a lot of my colleagues were sort of jealous of that because they were fun. They were they were fun to work on. Yeah, they're marquee. They're they're New England staples. So to get them on the resume is pretty exciting. But more recently, I've been involved in a lot of you know reposition projects. You know, I know you talked with Marin, and we worked together on Commonwealth Pier. That was a interesting and challenging project. You know, the structure itself and all of its issues, as, as she talked about, and then it being on the waterfront and looking at the climate resilience stuff. So I've been doing some things in some reposition projects, you know, with a great team here, you know, even, even now, you know, it's definitely not just me. It's a lot of people who are really working on those projects and making sure those clients are happy. That's some of the work in the seaport has led to focusing on climate resilience. And so helping support other types of clients, either with existing buildings or in their designing construction, looking towards the future. And how how are their buildings going to withstand future events? And that's been very rewarding. I want to understand the the growth or how H and A managed the growth. And if I look at your career, you're the principal market segment leader in education and healthcare. And this is looking at that market sector nationally. You're leading a team. I think I read you're doing about twelve to sixteen million annually. And this has morphed into you becoming the general manager of the Eastern business unit. So not necessarily market sector focused, you're now business units across the country. What kind of pain points or challenges were you facing as an organization that kind of led you to to restructure how you run the business? Yeah, when I 
When I moved from the market leader to the general manager of buildings and infrastructure, I was still operating in a space that from my own personal experience, you know, infrastructure, central artery infrastructure and, and buildings like I just mentioned. And, you know, while I'm a full-blooded geotechnical engineer, I, I'm adjacent to environmental issues. So I, you know, have an understanding of them. We started to see that having that role where the general manager has the responsibility for, you know, again, the all the operational responsibility in those markets was sort of hampering our growth in in that as we added staff and organizationally, it was a little harder to connect. You know, if you think about, I would fly out to California frequently where we had a lot of work there and, you know, and up and down the West Coast. And that that was, you know, if you're not there, you're not seeing it all and you're not as familiar with those with those markets or even the way services are delivered. And we so we reorganized regionally so that it's a little bit easier to scale. You know, there's there's a I have a group of people directly under me that I rely on a lot. And it was something that we created to help another, you know, manage people. And it's easier to scale if you kind of have that managerial team beneath you. You can add more of those. And it also a large part of the reason was to help provide our staff with, you know, a variety of work. You know, every company has little silos. It's it's hard. It's hard to hard to avoid. I think one of one of your interviews you talked about bridging silos, which really resonated with me because, you know, they they're hard to avoid. It's easier now. You know, it we often had people who would work on one type of project because they were in a certain business unit. And now when you're just in the office, you can do whatever kind of work makes sense for your career interests and what our client needs are. So you're not pigeonholed. Um, it, it just gives wider variety for folks. Yeah. Term I, I came to learn that to make me better understand what it means to be pigeonholed. It's when someone is operating in their zone of excellence. It means you're really good. You're really productive. You're making the company money. So they just try to, they subconsciously, whether it's intentional or unintentional, or they don't know how to change it. They just keep feeding you the work that you can do productively. But if it's not your zone of genius, you kind of feel pigeonholed because you're still interested in doing other things, but you're not necessarily getting that opportunity. So just understanding that, I think as an employee, if you're feeling pigeonholed, start using these types of things as context to show like, hey, I still want to do this work for a period of my time because I know it's productive to the company, but I need opportunity to build these other skill sets so I can continue to grow as a person. And we need well-rounded consultants. That's the thing. You know, we people, though, to be a consultant, our clients are relying on us for our experience. And if you have only have experience in one thing, you know, that's a challenge. So, you know, it takes time. You know, consulting takes time because you have to build that range of experience. But that's that's really helps our staff and therefore helps our clients. You're 100% correct. Something I talk about a lot. I, I got the these the language to articulate this is from Naval Ravikant. He talks about judgment and leverage. And if you're siloed, you're only seeing through a tunnel, essentially your own lens, your judgment on bigger picture conversations is limited because you don't have the experience or the exposure to have the context to make good decisions. You're, you're making decisions with limited information. So absolutely right. Training and development. I imagine as your team has grown from 400 people, you've reorganized the structure, you're giving people different career paths. That's not something you can just like set up an org chart and then say like, hey, I want you to go this direction. You go that. You have to give them resources to learn about the organization, learn about the skills required to be successful. How has your training and development program advanced over time? Yeah, uh, great question. You know, most of our training is serving clients, right? You know, and you learn on the job, but there's a lot you don't learn on the job and there's a lot you need as sort of foundational. So we've had a, we've had a training philosophy where we have what we call like baseline, how to work at H&A, how to be a consultant, how uh, it has a lot of our cultural values as well as tactical things about, like I said, being a consultant, how to be a good employee, things like that. We put people through uh, a two-day program called Personal Mastery, which is you know really learning how to manage yourself and your emotions so that you can be the best person. I love that. that. Personal Mastery is, and is that something you created internally, or is that something externally? Yeah, absolutely it, it, love that. Yeah. 
And so it, it focuses on, you know, like I said, it, in understanding yourself so that you can be the best person that you can be. And with the idea that a happy and emotionally intelligent person is going to, you know, be happier in their own life and be happier here. And we see that actually in our client feedback, our client feedback, you know, we're not the only geotechnical engineer around. We're not the only environmental consultant around. People can go, but they come back to us in part because they say that we are emotionally intelligent and can really help facilitate projects towards success. And a lot of that goes from understanding yourself and then understanding how to interact with others. And that helps the projects. So we have that foundational. And then then you have your your role specific. You're a project manager. You need to understand how to be a project manager. You need to learn how to run that finite element program. You know, you need to be up on the environmental regs, whatever it is. And then from there, we have a leadership development program. It's modeled after ACEC's, I think it's called SEI program. We've been doing it internally for uh, about 25 years now. So a cohort of 20, 25 people, it's, it's almost like a mini MBA customized to H&A. And really, it really helps people continue on their personal development and strategic thinking and, and things like that. So that's the, the pinnacle of it. With our reorg, we are continuing to update this program and we are working mostly in that middle level on making sure that we have all the systems and tools in place to help staff be the best they can be at their job. Again, with that foundation of, of, you know, what does it mean to be a consultant and how do you work here? And then how do you do your job as best as possible? I applaud H&A for the, the vision and the commitment to have a leadership program even for the last 25 years. A big flaw or headwind that businesses can focus is when they don't, they don't see the importance of a training and development program and especially leadership development, but you have these long tenured employees and you you continue to promote them and give them more money and they move into leadership positions. But if you haven't validated or given them the opportunity to develop the skills, awareness, context, and ability to go execute what it means to be a leader, you're going to hit, you're going to become a stagnant company because the leadership team doesn't have the ability to continue to grow. So you need to have these programs to put them in a position to succeed and your team growing from 400 to a thousand and still on track to keep to keep moving forward is a testament to that. Lean fundamentals. I haven't seen people talk about lean fundamentals in engineering and architecture to the design professional services a lot. And it's something your team has structured and is a part of your training development program. Can you talk about what is lean fundamentals mean? Sure. And that's down at that baseline. New hires go through like a quick little program to get a working knowledge of it. I, it's really it's a simple concept that comes actually from manufacturing, but really the three big tenants are you know increase value, reduce waste, and respect people. For me, one of the the bigger ones that I focus on more is that value, and you know thinking about who's your customer and what do they value. I obviously do that with clients. There are you know I may agree or not agree with things, but I, I, what's important to them. But it helps me internally as well, you know, when I'm thinking about my job as a general manager, who's my customer? My customers are clients, it's the company, and it's the people. And I have to, you know, maybe I have to switch here and there about which customer am I supporting the most, but I, I have to think in those terms, you know, it really helps me focus where I need to. So that's the one that resonates with me most and what I think about the most, you know, in terms of reducing waste, I mean... There's waste everywhere, right? Yeah. What are the three big areas of waste you see in design services? I mean, there there's some there's some basic, you know, waste about, you know, over processing, too much motion, too many steps into things, things like that. Frankly, in engineering, it could be over processing. How many, you know, we obviously have to do the right amount of analysis, the right amount of discussion, the right amount of focus, but knowing when to stop and move on is is really important whether it's engineering or or even the business you know you can you can read a million things you can study a million things but you know you have to at some point know that okay i'm spinning here and i just need to keep i need to move on so i personally Great see that analogy 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. The iterative design can be a, a tough one, right? Like how often are you revisiting that versus having, making sure you're having the right decisions in the right process? Are you doing A, B, C, or are you jumping steps that make you create rework in the long run, right? You can take any process and like look at it and then say, do we really need all these steps? One thing we've done with some clients is, is revamp reports. I mean, you know, who, who wants a, to read a report this thick, right? A geotechnical report that's an inch thick. If you're a developer, you want the executive summary. If, if you're providing a report to, you know, a design engineer for a bridge, they're going to look at that report very differently. So customizing and making sure that we're giving people the right information without too much information. You know, we don't do that everywhere, but for certain clients, you know, we try to streamline, take out the waste of, of a report. Value versus waste. This is something I got from, from H&A. Value versus waste. One of two things is always happening. Both require effort. Yep. So you might as well try to refine that to make sure that you're working more on valuable stuff rather than wasted effort. Easier said than done, but it's worth worth trying. <laughs> Easier said than done is correct. I absolutely love that. Liz, I've had a blast getting to know you. Thank you for sharing your career journey and all the great things happening at H&A. As always, I'd love to leave your top book or podcast for our audience to check out. I'm going to give you two, if that's okay. First one is a fiction book. It's called Pompeii. It's by Richard Harris. My husband gave it to me for Christmas, and it's it's a historical fiction book where a civil engineer is the protagonist. <laughs> so I I really enjoyed the book. It's good for geologists and civil engineers. It, it's set around the time of Mount Vesuvius exploding in AD 79 and burying Pompeii, but it's it's, it was a good story, and it was just funny because there was a civil engineer protagonist. But from a business perspective, one of the simplest books that has had an effect on me is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by uh, Stephen Covey. It's very simple, but it's got a lot of tenets. They align with lean thinking. They align with common sense. And, you know, just the win-win stories in there or the how to prioritize things. I've read a lot of business books and uh, a lot of them come back to principles in that book. So. That's a good one. It's a staple, right? Yeah. Liz, I wish you and everyone at H&A continued success. Thank you so much for joining Design Development today. Thank you. Really appreciate being here. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Design Development. Real quick before you leave, our goal is to help as many people as possible. We're a growing community and you're a big part of it. So just click that send button, send this episode to a friend, let them get those same insights that you got today. We appreciate you. See you next time.